Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Jocelyn Brown, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about Heat Rock, you know, an album that burns its way into our collective memory. And today, we'll be walking in the rain towards the Chapel of Love to revisit the 1964 album presenting the fabulous Ronettes featuring Veronica. If you're ever in Los Angeles and drive down Santa Monica Boulevard near Hollywood, it's impossible to miss the banana yellow surplus mart at the northwest corner of Santa Monica and Vine. It's so blinding you'd be forgiven for overlooking the opposite corner, which today is just a nondescript mini mall, which houses everything from a Metro PCS store to a beauty supply store to the Philly Steak Depot, which is for some reason spelled without the T. 60 years ago, however, and that corner once housed Gold Star Studios, one of the most storied and important recording studios in the world. If you've heard of Richie Valens' La Bamba, or Charles Wright and the Watts' 103rd Street Rhythm Band's Express Yourself, or maybe Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, those are all recorded there. But if Gold Star is known for anything, it's where producer Phil Spector invented the wall of sound techniques that revolutionized pop production in the early 60s, and no group is perhaps more associated with that wall of sound than the trio of Nidra Talley and her cousins Estelle Bennett and Veronica Ronnie Bennett, better known to us as the Ronettes. Hailing originally from East Harlem, their best-known hits were recorded at Gold Star, which means at that corner of Santa Monica and Vine, such timeless classics as Baby I Love You and Be My Baby were put to tape before they would go out and take the world by storm during the golden age of girl groups. I'm not going to claim that the Ronettes were the best girl group in history. I'll leave that to our guests to weigh in on. But how many crews not only opened for the Beatles, but had the Rolling Stones open for them? Yeah, put some respect on their name. Actually, put a gold star on their name. Presenting the fabulous Ronettes featuring Veronica was the album pick of our guest today, music writer, DJ, and record collector Sheila Burgle. Sheila is the host of one of my favorite radio shows, Sophisticated Boom Boom, on WFMU. Mm. She is one of the world's preeminent record collectors, focusing primarily upon girl groups, and has compiled several stellar record compilations toward this end via Ace Records in the UK. In her spare time, Sheila also edited a fascinating book showcasing her fellow record collectors around the world, Dustin Grooves. Sheila Burgle, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you, and for that lovely introduction. So as Jocelyn just mentioned, Sheila, I was first introduced to you and your spectacular record collection through our mutual acquaintance, uh, photographer Elon Paz, because he shot both of us for the Dustin Groove web series originally, and of course you edited the book version of that series, which... For listeners out there who've never seen it, it is absolutely worth picking up. And I'm not just saying this because both her and I are in it. <laughs> Anyways, when Elon originally interviewed you for his website, he asked why you collected primarily girl pop. And your response was, quote, perhaps it's simply because girls are better, unquote. And look, no argument from me on this one. But I am interested in terms of how were you introduced to girl pop in general and the Ronettes in particular? I discovered girl pop, I think, officially in London when I I moved to London right after high school. And at that point, um, I was listening to a lot of indie music, like both British and American. And I arrived in London just as the Blur versus Oasis fiasco was kicking off. And I was kind of like, I really didn't, I was, it was like tail end of shoegazing. I was frustrated by what was coming out both in the indie world and in the mainstream. And I and I met a couple of serious record collectors, like diehard girl group fans. And so I really thank them. And one of one of them is Mick Patrick of Ace Records and the other is Bob Stanley of the group Saint Etienne. And so I was kind of palling around with those guys and they are like the premier 60s girl pop collectors. And so they introduced me to that sound. And mm. so I, my first my first introduction was Franz Gall, you know, uh, from France, you know, 60s yeah, yeah girl. 
and also the British girl singers, of course, Sandy Shaw and Lulu and a lot of the lesser known ones. And then it's funny, I started kind of with the more obscure stuff that led me to the kind of, you know, gargantuan girl groups like the Ronettes. And I'm sure that I had heard Be My Baby a plenty of times before I actually became conscious of the Ronettes, you know, who they were, Phil Spector, Gold Star, The Wall of Sound. So once, but once it actually clicked and I'm listening to Baby I Love You and Be My Baby and Walking in the Rain, I could not believe that something so melodic and so heartfelt and so cozy and so comforting existed. And that was it. The love, the love affair began. Jocelyn, how about you? What was your introduction to the Ronettes? You know, it's kind of wild. Um, girl groups have always kind of been a bit omnipresent in my world. And I, I don't really remember a time when they weren't there. Yeah. Um, there's a significant amount of comfort in that for me. I, I kind of associate that sound with being at home and being cozy. Our house was definitely a bit of a Motown house. And so I grew up hearing Martha and the Vandellas and the Supremes and Tammy Terrell often. I was really interested in the showmanship and the glamour involved with Motown artists, but that also kind of ran concurrent with whatever new things my mom happened to be listening to at the time. Um, Mary Jane Girls, Climax, things of that nature. The Ronettes kind of came into my world as a result of working backward, in a way. I was finding out more about Cher's solo career, and I was amazed to find out that some of her earliest work occurred in singing backup for the Ronettes. And to mm. me, you know, I knew Be My Baby well because, you know, you kind of just absorb that through the collective pop culture consciousness. Right. And and it's because it's so well beloved. But I didn't know very many of their other songs and I wanted to get to know them. And I'm so glad that I did because not too long after this exploration, the world was introduced to Amy Winehouse and we know that there's a clear influence there. Absolutely. You know, for me, as a young teen, I used to listen to a lot of oldies radio here in L.A., and that meant being turned on to, you know, classic girl groups like the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las, and of course the Ronettes. And then as a hip-hop fan in the 90s, I came of age during the era's R&B girl groups. So, you know, you think In Vogue or Brownstone, SWV, TLC. Uh, and, you know, notably now my daughter, who's about to turn 16, is listening to K-pop girl group bands like Blackpink. So to every era, right, there's going to be these iconic girl groups that enter into it. But I'll say this much is that I never really thought that much about the Ronettes in particular until I started to DJ weddings. And people would request Be My Baby. This is clearly like that song is going to be such a common thread, I think, to a lot of our discussion today. And it's one of those songs where when you hear it played, especially on a really good loud sound system, you really understand how absolutely perfect, I mean, just perfect that song is. And it's so funny you mentioned that because when I DJ, I always have that record with me. And uh, sometimes I drop out the part where people go like, what? Oh, well, uh, exactly. Because uh, oh, exactly. everybody wants to sing it and everyone's no hands are in the air and then it kicks in, you know. <laughs> the beautiful thing, it unites people, that song, you know, from all generations. And that's right. a pretty magical thing. Right. So, Sheila, whenever I've found myself listening to the Ronettes, I find myself thinking a lot about that particular time period in modern music and how many different sounds were emerging. What is it specifically about the sound of the Ronettes and other girl groups of that era that continues to endure for you as a listener? The attention to melody is so strong and you see it throughout, you know, you know, Motown, 
and then the Brill building and then what's happening in L.A. And you have all of these extremely talented writers who are competing. And I think when there's such a system where everyone's trying to kind of get that number one record and you have such high quality, you just keep getting like higher and higher quality. So the funny thing is a lot of people are very well, actually, it's changed lately. But in the past, people have been very dismissive of the girl groups as saying it's kind of silly and it's for kids. But the songwriting level is so high. So so I think and I think that's, you know, obviously changing now. Thank God that people are really looking at girl groups with, you know, a lot of esteem and a lot of respect. Um, But yeah, melodically, it is it's superb. And it just and I feel like the melodies speak to our emotional, that emotional place in us, whether it's our heart or whatever it is that is unexplainable. It, t- it talks directly to that area and you feel it. And so when I listen to Be My Baby is a perfect example. I mean, it's a record that, you know, Brian Wilson heard and drove off the road, you know, almost got into a car accident because he was so amazed by the sound of this record. And I think that it's, it's a combination of melody, songwriting ability, production, ambition, America being in this like kind of prime time, right? It's like it's there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, positivity in the air. And I think all of these elements coming together just created a really magical period. And I and I have yet to hear a period of music that tops 1960s USA, really. It's so spectacular. And the girl groups were so, so much of a part, a part of making that era so special. I mentioned Phil Spector and the Wall of Sound production, which is a, a phrase that he's well known for. Sheila, do you mind just uh, for the audience defining what what that means? Like, what do we mean by the Wall of Sound? Uh, sound, basically. Yeah, I mean, what he bas- Phil Spector basically wanted to create this enormous sound, and and we call it the Wall of Sound because that's what it sounds like. And when you look at the, you know, on on presenting. Uh, the fab- the fabulous Ronettes, you see the list of musicians and these guys were like, you know, they were they were just layer layering upon layering upon layering guitars, castanets, drums, background vocals to create just this enormity of sound, which has now been called the wall of sound, which is what Phil Spector is known for. And he's pretty much done it on most of his productions where you just have, you know, a huge amount of of, of musicians and instruments going on at the same time. I always found it strange that he was trying to be a little bit coy and jokingly referring to them as little symphonies for the kiddies because it's like, come on, man, don't sell yourself. Are these (laughs) fabulous musicians short? This is bigger than any of that. Even if you just want to say it in jest, put it out there. Um, you know, not to get too pop music scholar about this, but I think one of the things that always strikes me about the sound of girl groups in the sixties is that unlike other genres in pop music, where the kind of racial background of the singers is immediately apparent, I guess I've always experienced the girl groups as being very kind of racially ambiguous. And maybe that was by a lot of ways, particular design. What I find so fascinating about girl pop is that it's, to me, it's interesting for more than just the gender composition of the groups. It's also about what the sounds of it signified to a lot of different audiences in a way that I think really helped it cross over uh, and break out of some of these more rigid music industry defined genres that had existed in that same era. music for everyone and as as you're talking about this I, I think of like Quincy Jones and Leslie Gore which is like the most interesting and unexpected collaboration and that the music business was set up in such a way that those two people could collaborate and make here yet another kind of gargantuan record it's my party you know that was Quincy and, and, and Leslie Gore and I see that also within you know everything that was happening at Gold Star in terms of 
you know, the the songwriters and the producers and the artists. It was just it was everyone all together making these records. And and when I've interviewed, you know, artists from the 1960s, a lot of them say like this was the one place. And of course, there's issues. I mean, there's sexism and racism and homophobia rampant in the 1960s, of course. But it seems like there was this special thing happening within with the musicians, with the producers, with the artists that like people truly felt like they were one and they were working on these records as one. And you and I feel like you can hear that almost. It's like it's a unification in a way of all of so many elements. And and we can dig into a lot, you know, yes, Be My Baby, beautiful record. But there's also a lot of darkness behind that with with Ronnie Spector and Phil Spector's relationship. And, yeah, you know, that's a that's a love record for her. Um, and that's a dark, messed up, dangerous <laughs> relationship, ultimately. But but if we're talking just about the music, that is that's that's unity. That's love. That's magic there for everybody. You know, oh, absolutely. And Jocelyn, I, I want to hear sort of your thoughts and your very own question. But since Sheila just brought up, uh, you know, kind of the elephant in the room, which is about Phil Spector, which, of course, who, of course, just passed away recently. And we did not we picked this album before the news of that broke. Um, but let's just kind of get maybe that part, this part of the conversation out of the way is that Phil Spector produced this album um, and he was, I think, unquestionably one of the most important American pop producers in history and was also inarguably a terrible human being who uh, very notoriously married Ronnie Bennett and then literally kept her hostage for years before she finally left him in the early 70s uh, and was an abuser and more specifically a convicted murderer who, um, because of that, and was, it was sent to prison, ended up dying in prison uh, uh, just the other week from COVID, uh, he is hardly, you know, the only, sadly, he's hardly the only abusive figure in pop music history. He's just one of the very few that uh, actually was made to pay the price uh, for his transgressions. Uh, and my point here is simply that I don't think we can talk about this album without talking about Spectre on some level, but we also can't talk about him, least of all, given the timing of this episode, without also reminding the audience that, as, as Sheila put it, um, he represents, I think, a very dark side, uh, the underbelly and beneath the kind of happiness of the sound of this. Um, there are very dark elements circulating uh, literally on this album as well. Uh, and that decades later, I mean, we're we still haven't really fully reckoned with both this history or how it still is omnipresent uh, in today's music industry. So I don't I don't mean to bring down the mood, but it just has to be said because I don't think we can overlook this element of of the specter of specter uh, lurking behind this Ronettes album. So. On that note, Jocelyn, what do you think it is about the sound of girl pop that, and girl groups in particular that, that is so eternally appealing? I think that everyone can relate to being young and all the trials and tribulations that come along with being in love. You know, you want to be in love. Old people are giving you grief about your love. You're confused. You're breaking up and you're getting back together. All of those themes are universal. And I really connect with the sense of hopefulness that the Ronettes brought to their work. But, you know... I also want to point out there's a sense of yearning and longing in Ronnie Bennett's voice mm. that goes beyond love. It transcends love. There's something else going on there. And as a listener, mm. knowing now what I know about Phil Spector, I can't help but wonder, you know, is a lot of that sense of yearning and hopefulness and daydreaming largely about daydreaming about what it would mean to be free in her world and to pursue the life that she wanted to pursue, to do the things that she wanted to do. You know, there's some romance in that too, and that's important. It's important to really consider that, you know, there are the worlds that you have to live with in your life, but there's also another world within yourself that you daydream about living in and inhabiting. And I think she very firmly had that at the forefront of her mind, no matter what she was going through. So this album was, I believe, the only uh, studio album that the Ronettes put out. And while the notion of the LP certainly had become into, as a format, began to you know really take form in the 1960s, a lot of the albums before this were really more like a collection of singles. So I'm wondering where does, well, two questions here. 
is presenting the fabulous Ronettes, is it an album album in your mind? And regardless of that answer, what makes this a heat rock for you? It's It falls in between a singles collection and an album. There are some songs on there that didn't um, appear on singles, um, but mainly it's a collection of their greatest hits, which they had. And this was this album came out in November of 64, and they were having these hits in 63. There's so many reasons that I would pick this album. One, because of the the strength of all of the material, even their covers, like So Young is just the most luscious, romantic, dreamiest cover. And then Phil Spector's um, When I Saw You, another super dreamy song. So I think also, so it's it's the strength of the songwriting and the songwriters involved, like Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann, um, Vince Poncia, um, well, obviously Spectre, who has a credit on pretty much every song, whether he is actually involved in the writing, who knows. But uh, And I think, so So the quality of the songwriting, the songwriters, Gold Star, all of the, the people that are involved in this record, even like, you know, Engineer La- Larry Levine, Jack Nietzsche as a ranger, Cher singing backup, all of the wrecking crew, Carol Kay, Steve Douglas. I mean, it's like, it just seems this, this like, the great, the greatest hope that music could achieve is to me is on this record um, in terms of melodic quality, quality of musicians, quality of songwriters, Phil Spector, the wall of sound, the love that Ronnie Spector had for singing and for the as as Jocelyn, you pointed out, like this kind of daydreaming, this hope, this ambition, this um, this yearning. You can hear it in her. What about Ronnie Spector's voice is it's an untrained voice. She was not like so many of her fellow girl group comrades was not trained in church. And so a lot of people actually, when they heard her voice, you know, in the Spectre crew were not that impressed. So like this girl can't really sing when you compare her to Darlene Love, when you compare her to, you know, some of the other uh, crystals. But that that's something so to me so magical. Here's this girl. She's filled with hope. She's filled with yearning. She's filled with ambition. She wants to make it. She's got a quality in there that that comes through whether, you know, tra- what and training doesn't even mean anything. It's like it's like you just hear her soul, right? And that soul just like to me just c- connects and 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 it connects obviously it connected with the world and people are still interested in Ronnie Spector today because of that whatever that is, right? What is that? It's like that that magic that is unexplainable that doesn't need training. But I'm also interested in how the Ronettes fit into the evolution of what we think of as the girl group sound, because they obviously weren't the first and certainly weren't the last. So where do they rank within the kind of pantheon of girl groups, both in terms of their influence and, and just quality of execution? Well, the, the Ronettes are always, you know, Be My Baby is always in the greatest uh, songs of all time lists. Wherever you look, they're there. Yeah. That song is there. So right. I think because of because of the success of that song, I think it was number two on the Billboard charts. And also after, you know, around that song with people like Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys kind of going gaga for the record and then the Beatles and everyone bringing them on tour. I think like, I mean, it's hard to like rate, you know, like where are they on the list? But I think they're in terms of girl groups, they're they're one of the top. I mean, you have the, the Ronettes, you have the Shangri-Las and you have the Supremes, maybe I think those are the three and the Shirelles, those four, I think would be at the top as the most recognizable girl groups. And also the thing about the Ronettes is I think they were so visually, someone could do like an illustration and you'd know that's the Ronettes, which, which Amy Winehouse so perfectly took, you know, um, whereas the crystals, you know, they didn't have a defined look neither did really the Shirelles. Um, Ronnie Spector was recognizable. And so I think when people think about girl groups, I, I believe they think about the Ronettes. I'm gonna live and die for only you. Baby, baby, now you're gonna know all the ways I plan to fool you so. You're gonna see there's a lifetime of love in me. 
Well, we will be back with more of our conversation with Sheila Bergel about presenting the fabulous Ronettes featuring Veronica after a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Hey, I'm Janet Farney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment, and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. Congratulations, you've won a ticket to attend an exclusive opportunity in a relaxing environment with two lovers. Wow. (laughs) Well, this sounds like a sort of proposition of sorts, but really it's an ad for our podcast. (laughs) Wonderful. It's a show we do here on Maximum Fun where we talk about things that we like and things that we're into. I'm Rachel McElroy, and you just heard Griffin McElroy, and we are excited for you to join us as we talk about movies and music and books. Things like sneezing or the idea of rain. (laughs) (laughs) Can you get news or information you can use? Absolutely you cannot, because we're here to talk to you about pumpernickel bread. You can find new episodes on Wednesdays. So catch, catch the wave! We're back on Heat Rocks talking, presenting the fabulous Ronettes featuring Veronica with Sheila Burgle. Uh, Sheila, as a record collector, and we talked about this in the front half, you specialize in girl pop. And I'm assuming that you have certainly covered the different scenes and the artists who came out of countries that you might expect, like the US, the UK, and Japan. But I'm wondering how universal has the girl group phenomenon been in other countries and to what extent is the sound of it similar or different um, from what we're used to in the U.S. based on the stuff that you found over the years uh, collecting, uh, you know, girl pop from across the globe? What's so interesting is that you would expect, given how massive records like Dadu Ron Ron and Be My Baby were, that it would immediately be copied overseas. And the thing was that didn't really happen. There were not a lot of what you called Spectre soundalikes happening around the world like you heard you had French covers of Dadu Ron Ron but they didn't they were not trying to like you know do the whole gold star studio sound or to to, to recreate a be my baby but in the 1980s say in Japan, the Spectre sound, the girl group sound was everywhere. I mean, you had all the shabop bop, dooby dooby doos, da do run run in all of these really random records, including male, you know, artists were kind of trying to create that sound as well. Like there's a there's an artist named Eiichi Otaki, part of this crew called Niagara mm. that um, in the 1980s that were um, really going for that sound a very, very, you know, feminine romantic kind of girl group style records. So in Japan in the 1980s, that sound was everywhere. And so, of Mm. course, I have all of those records in my collection because I must. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot of it going on in the U.S. at the time, right? So as, as, as is with anything that becomes popular here, right? Someone comes out with something that sounds like nothing else. Immediately the machine, you know, everyone, these small time producers all over the country kick into high gear and they try and recreate the sound. And that has created a ton of excellent records because when you're trying to, to reach that level, like the production wise, songwriting wise, vocal wise, um, you're, you know, even the, the, the sound alikes, the copycats are gonna, are gonna have a pretty good go of it. And so I, I'd say a huge bulk of my record collection is dedicated to those sound alikes happening in the U S but other than, other than Japan in the 1980s and, and France, you hear it in the 1980s and obviously in England, but the sound, they weren't really doing the wall of sound in the same way in the UK. Mm. 
Like there was a record called Shangadulang by Adrian Posta, uh, an obscure record on the Decca label written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, incidentally. That is a pure Spectre knockoff. I mean, it is excellent. But it's a rarity. Like, there are not these galloping wall of sound records, like, coming out every other week in, in the UK or France or Italy. Or, I mean, I've, in my exploration of music worldwide, like, people seemed to stay true to whatever was happening in their countries with the added kind of flavor of, say, influence from overseas. Um, maybe I'd leave Japan out of that because they were very great at mimicking all different styles. But um right. But but girl groups, you know, they they look maybe they look like girl groups, but they don't necessarily capture that sound. Like even in like say the early two thousands, you had the Puppets, you know, a British British trio who were who were trying to do that whole hand clap, you know, bebop bebop kind of thing. But it wasn't, you know, it's just it's just a bit it was a bit silly. I thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, bringing this back to presenting the fabulous Ronettes featuring Veronica, and actually, I have a quick question about just the title of the album, which is, it, when when I first saw this, I'm like, who the hell is Veronica? Because I always just know her as Ronnie, and th- I feel like the world knows her as Ronnie, so why is she billed as Veronica on here, besides the fact that I'm assuming it's her legal name? But it's just kind of weird to me that like all these years later, nobody thinks of her as Veronica. Everybody just knows her as Ronnie. That's a good point. Um, I think it was one. Yes, it's her birth name. And also maybe there was something that they wanted to add a bit of sophistication. So Ronnie does kind of have a little bit of a, you know, kind of pet name in a way or, you know, nickname as opposed to Veronica. I mean, because the, the cover is very, you know, she's like, I am here and I am sultry and I am sophisticated. And I think that's probably why, you know. So in terms of this album, what is the fire track off this LP for you? Oh boy. Well, we've talked a lot about Be My Baby. So, um, I mean, can it be any other song besides Be My Baby? No, it can't. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> let's uh let's go beyond that because because there's so many good things on this record. Um I guess Walking in the Rain, it opens the album. Yeah. So you begin with Thunder. then the, the backing vocals come in everything comes in really gently and then and then there's veronica you know pronouncing herself with this i want him i need him i want him It's like you're thrust into her world immediately. And so I think it's a perfect opener because it's like, you can't see me, but I'm making that gesture with my finger of like, come on in, you know, boys and girls, welcome to my world. And I'm going to hold you here in a, in a warm, gorgeous womb. And that's how I feel when I listen to Walking in the Rain. It's, it's just, it's being held by, by bliss. scoop my whole slow burner answer like entirely (laughs) but that's why you're here that's why that's why you're our guest today so walking in the rain is your slow burner pick yes it was yeah it it was exactly for all of those reasons you know by the time that song ends you're squarely in the headspace of a teenage girl in love and who doesn't want to think about that at least once in their life, right? If, if they don't want to feel that and be in that exact moment. 
it's a beautiful thing. Mm. I mean, Sheila, to your your earlier point, I think the fact that this opens the album is it's just really I mean, it's really important. And this goes back to something that we were talking about in the front half about whether or not this was an album album or just a collection of singles. And I think there is definitely some intention from a sequencing point of view to open the album with it's not just a song. I mean, really, it's about that thunderstorm effect because immediately you're like, wait, what's what's going on here? Where are we? What is this supposed to be? And I mean, I'd have to, I, I have not spent like enough time just sitting with this album in, in its totality, but I feel like Walking in the Rain also just sounds somehow different than most of the other songs on the rest of it. It's not, I mean, it's not like it's a sad or depressing song, but there's a kind of density and weightiness to it that I don't necessarily associate with a lot of the other, or maybe just the better known singles off of here. So I think for all those reasons, I mean, I, I'm with Jocelyn. This was my slow burner song because it's it's a tune that I had not heard before. And again, maybe just because it opens, maybe because of the thunderstorm, but it just puts me in a different space compared to like listening to Be My Baby uh, in a way that is is mesmerizing and, and kind of haunting. Mm. Justin, we skipped over what was your, so we know what your, your uh, slow burner is, but what, what was your fire track? Ooh, um, it's a tie for me between the best part of breaking up and how mm. does it feel? Those two have been my favorites for a very long time and I, I just can't choose. <laughs> I can't choose. What is it about each of the songs? Honestly, there are so many dynamic shifts that happen between both of those songs that catch you completely off guard that you have to rewind and be like, did I just hear what I think I heard in terms of how they communicated that melody and managed to harmonize? Like, it gets me every time. I, I just love both those songs. I mean, for me, it's Be My Baby because it, it's considered to be one of the greatest pop songs in history. I don't know what else could be. So I actually like the fact, Jocelyn, that you picked neither. You didn't pick that song for either of your two choices. Um, and we've certainly talked a lot about Be My Baby, and I'm going to talk more about it in just a moment. But if I got to take that off the board, um, then I think my honorable mention would go to Baby I Love You, which to me is nearly as good. And any song that is nearly as good as Be My Baby is already one of the best songs ever, uh, just just on credit. And I'm wondering, I, I, and again, Sheila, you probably would know this, which which single came out first? Because they sound close enough in, in just style, the fact they both have the name Baby. I'm assuming one song was meant to be an attempt at following up on the success of the other. Yes, I can pretty much say that Be My Baby was first. Am I right? I Hold on, hold on. Yes, yes, yes. And then okay. ba Baby I Love You came out after. I'm just double checking because right. you know, sometimes it, yeah, it was it's a follow up. It's, it's often that like derivative, you know, attempts to derive a hit from another hit just feels a little too obvious and, and audiences don't gravitate it to, to it. But um, even though I'd heard Be My Baby a lot, I was saying before about how DJing with that song is really what made me appreciate it. But I got Baby, I Love You on single first. And so that was the first Ronette song that I ever played out and got to hear like on a good system. I'm like, this is amazing. And then I played Be My Baby and like, okay, this is even more amazing. But even if Baby, I Love You is meant to be you know, an attempt to, to surf off of the success of the, in the wake of uh, Be My Baby, it's still like an incredibly good song. Right. You even got the whoa, oh, you know, thing going on as well. So, yeah, clearly the two share some of the similar DNA. And this leads me back uh, and leads me to the next uh, set of questions for for everyone here, which is about favorite moments off of this album. And I'm, I'm you know, with no surprise here, um, I have two favorite moments and they're both from Be My Baby. Um, the first is simply how it opens with those two bars of that drum pattern um, that to me at least has become absolutely signature. And what's funny though is um, I do a, a small mini lecture uh, about the 
this the block of Santa Monica Boulevard that Gold Star Studios used to be on because it's actually kind of this amazing block in LA musical history. Gold Star is just one of the one example of the buildings uh, along this single block that has this incredible history in, in terms of uh, music in LA. And so one of the things I do when I when I lecture about this to my students is I play them snippets of different songs. And so usually they pick up like La Bamba pretty quickly because that opening guitar um, is really obvious and Good Vibrations has this very iconic beginning. And I'm always surprised that they don't know the beginning of Be My Baby when I just play those two bars of the drums because what other song could it be but this one, but of course I realize it's because they're like, you know, Gen Z and they, they didn't grow up listening to the Ronettes apparently. But I mean, again, give me, give me a more iconic two bar opening of just drums to any song. And it's also just when the strings and the wall of sound come in on bars three and four that you're just... You know, the, the drums signal something's about to happen. And when that thing actually happens, you're mind blown. It's just, wow, this is amazing. The second favorite moment comes, and this goes exactly to what Sheila was saying um, at the beginning of, of the, our episode. It's the whoa, oh, oh part at the end of the chorus. And like the same way that you do it is when you play this out, you just drop the sound out on that so the crowd can sing along. And it's so much fun because everyone knows it's about to come and it never fails. I don't I don't think there's ever been a time when I've dropped it where people didn't know what to do in that moment. So uh Be My Baby has my two favorite moments off of this album. Jocelyn, how about you? You know, in the opening bars of How Does It Feel, you've got this percussive interplay going between the drums and the piano, and you've got the finger snaps, the hand claps. It slays me every time. And then there's this this part with the tempo that does the rapid change, and you've got the backing vocal harmonies that come in all of a sudden. It's a knockout. very glad you didn't see me listening to this in the car earlier today <laughs> actually now now i want to see what you were <laughs> what you looked like listening to the car listening to this in the car <laughs> sheila how about you do you have any favorite moments off of this lp well of course i'm also in the be my baby what oh part that is yeah. a monumental occasion in music yeah. um and I, I miss djing out because i haven't done that drop in so long and it's just such a Oh, a rush. You know, I've never really thought about moments in this record, but I, I'm such a fan of the, like when I saw you is actually one of my favorites of their, their records because of the, the kind of gentle romance. Like a lot of their stuff comes with a lot of, you know, intense, you know, wall of sound bombast, like, you know, throw it all in there. And then, and then when they actually take a step back, I really find a lot of comfort in that. So in so young in when I saw you just, just the kind of tinkling in the beginning where I'm like, Oh, I'm being, I'm being taken on a kind of romantic sleigh ride here. Well, is there a song off of here? Let's say you ran into some alien who had never heard of the Ronettes and you had to introduce them to the group and their sound through a song off of this album. Which one would you choose as that introduction? Be my baby. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's, 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 it's <laughs> no it's brainer. Too, it, it's like too um, omnipotent, right? Like It's like, it's just too powerful of a song that nothing else could really compete with that. So, Sheila, if you had to use three words to describe this album to anyone, what would you say? Melody, hooks, magic. Boom. Right off right the bat. Right off the bat. Wow. 
Awesome. That's amazing. Well, before we bounce, we always want to leave our audience with something dope to step to next. So if you enjoyed listening to The Ronettes, we have some recommendations for what you should check out next. Jocelyn, please start us off. You know, it's kind of an obvious answer, but I'm going to say the Shangri-La's leader of the pack. Um, And I say that in part because their ad-libs during the songs are just so great. It literally feels like you're walking with a girl gang through a high school hallway. And I kind of love that. I love that their singing voices aren't that far off from their speaking voices. And there's just so much more to them than the hit that they're known for. Mm. Um, My two favorite songs from that album are Give Him a Great Big Kiss. And there's another track called Bulldog. And you can kind of hear the beginnings of other genres of music that have emerged since, like, say, Rockabilly or Psychopunk, like other things coming from that world. They're just so full of attitude and determination, and and they remind me of another girl group we know. I would pick, and I just, oh my God, I just love, love, love this album so much, would be Laura Nairo uh, featuring LaBelle's Gonna Take a Miracle from 1971. I mean, just on a a basic, you know, aesthetic experiential level, it's just hearing Nairo and LaBelle sing together. Um, But also as it relates to part of our conversation, I think what makes Gonna Take a Miracle so fascinating to me is I often have, I've described it as the earliest retro soul album because it's Nairo and LaBelle very self-consciously revisiting the girl group and early R&B sound from more or less like a decade earlier. And even if the passage of literal time doesn't seem that significant between when some of the songs they're covering were actually recorded to when they put this album out, to me, the idea behind uh, Gonna Take a Miracle is this is how music used to sound and we loved it and we want to pay homage to it. So it's that kind of backwards you know, looking and listening that's happening here. That is again, why I describe it as kind of the earliest retro soul album, even if it's from 1971. And I didn't actually, I didn't even realize until now that one of the songs on there, in fact, one of my favorite songs on there, the, uh, the bells was a song that was recorded in 1970 by the original. So they, they literally only went back a year to cover it, but it sounds like it's from an earlier era. I just love it so much. All right, Sheila, take us home. What would you recommend to our audience to check out after they're done with the Ronettes? You know, I was kind of, as I was listening to you guys, I was panicking a little bit because I don't really think of, when I think of girl groups, I don't really have albums that I listen to because I'm there. It's such a single genre, you know? So when I, you know, like obviously presenting the fab- fabulous Ronettes to me is a no brainer in terms of when someone asks me about an album, but I'm, I'm like racking my brain. I'm like kind of mentally going through my record collection thinking what other girl group album do I get out? And I don't get out that many girl group albums. I get out, I get out all my favorite singles all the time. So, well, um, give us, give us, give the audience some artists that they should follow up with then. Oh, okay. Dixie cups made a ton of excellent records. Rep Reparata and the Delrons, very underrated girl group who cut so many great singles for world artists and RCA and all of them really interesting, kind of a, lot, a few wall of sound alikes.
even, you know, Leslie Gore, considering uh, considered a one woman girl group, she, you know, because she had a lot of the same writers that are on the Ronettes album, um, like Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry. So I recommend all of her kind of earliest records for Mercury, really top notch songwriting and Klaus Ogerman doing the arrangements, obviously Quincy Jones um, producing. Don't try to change me in any way. So, yeah, I'm sorry I'm a little vague on this, but it's just like it's like oh. trying to like narrow down. I, I focused on the Ronettes and I was like, I, can't, I don't know if I can think outside of that tonight. Um, no, that's a solid list for yeah. people to go off on. So, no, thank you for that. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Sheila Burgle. We're so happy you were here and talking with us this evening. What are you working on now and where can people find you? Well, thank you all for having me. It's been such a pleasure to to enthuse about this album with you. Um, so I do a weekly show on WFMU called Sophisticated Boom Boom, and that's every Friday from 3 p.m to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's where I am. I have gotten off all social media, so I'm not easily uh, uh, contactable anymore. But that's that's where you'll find me. That's what that's my main my main gig at the moment during this time. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong. And me, Jocelyn Brown, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and human Swiss army knife Christian Duenas, who also engineers and edits our show. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, normally taping live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Though currently, we're all taping safe from home. If you have a spare minute and haven't already done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes as it is a key way that new audience members can find their way to our humble podcast. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. Thanks for coming through, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me on. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.